Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Alrighty, well, uh, welcome everyone to another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm joined in with Stevie G. Welcome to the show, Steve. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the show, Lucas. Thanks, man. So today, I thought I'd bring Steve on to discuss a little bit about his up-and-coming book. Um, and we're going to be focusing mostly in the realm of sort of productivity hacking and um, optimizing work performance and just general uh, sort of um, work performance and things like that. So um, Steve's actually, he, he mentored me uh, a couple of years back um, and influenced me in a really positive way, actually. He, um, he taught me how to not be perfect from the get-go and to just get shit done and to just sort of go with the flow and, um, and learn as you go. Uh, and which is something that I'm carrying on with me today with um, mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Still a work in progress. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, and still just sort of applying those um, sort of techniques and practices when it comes to like just getting started on mm. tasks, um, which I'm sure like yourself, you've had in terms of like getting things rolling, getting the ball rolling. It's definitely the hardest part. Well, that's, that's something I actually talk about in the book and it goes back to Isaac Newton's laws of motion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of those laws is that an object in motion stays in motion until it is disturbed by an unbalanced force. So oftentimes when we sit down to our work, for example, if you're sitting down to write a 2000 word article, like that can seem like such a Herculean thing that, oh man, like your brain just doesn't want to do that because biologically, evolutionarily, we are wired to conserve energy. Like this goes back to running around the African savanna. Uh, you didn't know when you were going to eat. You had predators lurking. You needed to chase your prey. And so you would conserve energy for those moments of uh, fight or flight. Mm. Um, so when you sit down at your work in the morning, those evolutionary biases are still there. And so it's easy for us to, instead of starting on that 2,000-word article, jump onto LinkedIn, get onto Twitter, uh, you know, scroll through the gram and see what people are posting and just like and comment on things because that's easy. It doesn't really require mental energy. But in order to get that wheel rolling, to leverage that law of motion, just commit to the smallest possible thing. So what's the smallest possible unit of actual work you can commit to? So if it's that 2,000 word piece, commit to 100 words doesn't need to be perfect. Like you were saying, like don't expect perfect from day one, but just commit to a hundred words. Once you get those hundred words down, 
the wheel's rolling. It's so much easier to keep going. You don't need to exert as much energy to keep that wheel rolling once it's already in motion. And so whatever that is, like it does need to be an article, it could be going to the gym. Like a lot of people struggle with getting into the, the headspace to do that. But, you know, rather than committing to an hour long workout and, you know, 140 kilogram deadlift or whatever it is, commit to going for 10 minutes and just doing a few sets of, you know, whatever, bench pressed or some, you know, rudimentary thing like that. Once you're there, once you've made the effort to actually go to the gym, kit up, you know, do some sets, you know, working out for another hour becomes so much easier. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to, let's sort of backtrack and um, delve into, I guess, like for those that want to begin their own business. Um, yeah. Like, let's talk about like some of the, the common challenges that people face when they want to like, let's say, begin their own um, you know, entrepreneurial idea. Mm-hmm. I think two of the biggest challenges or pitfalls that people fall into, uh, particularly if they've never started a business before, is one, jumping to conclusions and two, analysis paralysis, right? So I've seen this play out. I mean, a bit of a backstory on me. I mean, we I founded Collective Campus and Collective Campus is a corporate innovation and startup accelerator. And in the last six years, we've incubated over 100 startups and helped them collectively raise about 30 million US dollars. So we've worked with a lot of early stage startups across lots of different industries. We consult, advise, uh, run workshops and all sorts of manner of things. So we know the early stage startup game quite well and I've seen all sorts of entrepreneurs come and go over the years. Um, but... One, jumping to conclusions, thinking that you've got this awesome idea and you don't want to tell anyone about it for fear that they might steal your idea. Now, the thing about that is if you've got an idea and it is, you know, you're scared that someone's going to steal it. Well, firstly, building anything is difficult. Like Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computers said, ideas are a commodity, execution of them is not. It's not the idea. Yeah, if you've got an idea, chances are there's a hundred people in the world with the same idea. It's yeah. about who can execute the best and, right. and, and sometimes the fastest as well. Mm-hmm. So if someone else wants to take your idea and spend the next two, three, four, five years working on it, hey, good luck to them. Mm-hmm. But really by sharing your idea, that's how you get feedback to improve your idea, right? Um, but people in that bucket tend not to share their idea. They tend to work in stealth mode for maybe a year or so. They spend a lot of time, a lot of money on something. They release it and it is crickets. It's, it's basically turned out to be a failed exercise and a waste of time and money for them. The other side of that coin is the analysis paralysis where you think um, you, know, you want to get it perfect and you want absolutely every single you know, thing, every single piece of the puzzle to be in the right position mm-hmm. before you move. And as a byproduct of that, you actually don't do anything. Like you spend a year or two just talking about doing this thing, planning it, researching it. But like Steve Blank, the father of the lean startup movement said, uh, business plans don't survive first contact with the customer. It's kind of like that Mike Tyson. I think it actually wasn't a Mike Tyson quote. I believe it was his trainer, Customato, who said everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yep. And so the faster you can get punched in the face as an early stage entrepreneur, the better off you'll be. Yep. Um, you know, to quote another fighter, Rocky Balboa, uh, <laughs> life's all about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. But those punches always teach you something, right? So the thing is, both of these cases, analysis paralysis and jumping to conclusions, there are antidotes or solutions to them, which is testing your assumptions, yeah. right? So whatever idea you have, chances are there are assumptions that underpin that idea. For example, if I was the founder of Uber, say 10 or so years ago when that company came along, uh, you know, what do you think the assumptions are for, for Uber, Lucas? Like For them? Yeah. Back then? That main, main, like, Top assumption, what would it be? That people would easily switch over and ditch a taxi, but instead of using a taxi, they'd... Yep. But but what do you think their concerns might have been with private cars? Trust. Exactly. Exactly. So will people trust a private car or as an owner of a private car, will I trust some random stranger jumping into my car? So that you've got to validate that first. Now, you could jump to conclusions by building out the app, Mm. doing your marketing, onboarding drivers... And, you know, several million dollars later, you've got this product ready to go. Uh, You could end up in analysis paralysis and just write a hundred page business plan full of hocus pocus projections about what the market's going to do. Or you could go down to say a busy taxi rank 
on a Saturday night in, in Melbourne and offer people rides home for like $10 and you know, provide them with some identification to make sure that, you know, there is some sort of a laying of their security concerns mm-hmm. and see what percentage of people in that taxi rank actually agree to do that. Now, that's a simple uh, test, low cost that you can do quickly to start validating or invalidating that assumption. Mm. Um, so whatever it is, when you test your assumptions, like a scientist would, um, it gives you more information with which to navigate the world um, so that you're not stuck in analysis paralysis, forever pontificating about what you should do. And you're not jumping to conclusions because the data is telling you that actually this isn't a good idea. Let's pull back and reassess where we're going. Mm. So let's say somebody does go through that process and they they vet their idea and get it evaluated cheaply, yep. like low cost. Yeah. What do you think is like the next step for them? Like how can they scale up or just progress that business idea? Sure. So, I mean, ultimately, like most things, it's, there's no one size fits all and it really depends on the nature of their idea. Um, but what I do, what I'm a big fan of is the 80-20 Pareto principle that says that 80% of your outcomes come from 20% of your causes. So, if you look at, say, the Melbourne uh, streets, uh, 80% of the cars are on roughly 20% of the streets. And this is a universal law of nature that shows up absolutely everywhere. Mm. So, if you have validated that people want to jump in a car with a private uh, pri- with a private driver who is more likely to to use this right like what are the 20% of customers that are likely to jump into 80% of the rides and it's going to be young uh, 18 to 25 year old inner city types who go out at night and are open to new technology, right? So I would first start to target that particular So would they be early adopters? Exactly, early adopters. And early adopters uh, tend to make up about 13% of your eventual market. In In fact, there's actually an earlier segment of that early adopter piece. So this comes from a book... Uh, Everett Rogers wrote about, he called it the diffusion of technology. So it was really about the adoption of new products. But early adopters are about 13.5% of the eventual market. But before that, you have about 2% of the eventual market who are innovators. And they're just willing to try different things. Like you want to target them first because they're more likely to try your product before anyone else. So you don't want to target like everybody. Um, Like for example... Just yesterday, I got an email from a marketing person at IGA. So for your American listeners, that's basically just like a supermarket chain. And they were saying, hey, we've got a great opportunity. You can promote your media company on our community notice boards in our supermarkets. And now that's terrible marketing because it's not targeted. It's not... Yeah, but something like that is you're targeting above the line. You want everybody to be across your product. Whereas with something like this, the early adopters, I can find them online through Facebook um, ads, which also means I can target them on Instagram. I can target them based on very specific customer profiles. Where do they live? What age are they? Household income? What are their interests? And so on. And I would just spend a few hundred dollars doing that um, to try and capture those customers, bring them along to say uh, my you know, landing page or, or my app and just start getting those balls going because they're more likely to use it and if they're more likely to use it, they'll generate some early stage income, which I can then reinvest into other activities, into product and marketing activities. Mm. Um, you know, there's a tendency for a lot of early stage entrepreneurs to think that they need to raise capital. Now, in some cases, that's true, depending on what you're doing. But I feel like there is this, this tendency to not even look at the other side of things, which is bootstrapping, creating a business that actually has a value proposition that people are willing to spend money on. If you do that, you've, you've got money coming in and you can invest that money into growth. What about for the, um, I remember like a lot of entrepreneurs say the same thing is that that first year they should expect to be losing money. Yeah. So how does that like? Yeah. Not necessarily. Like, and this is a thing with any form of advice. Uh, it's something I've come to learn over the years is, when people demarcate things into neat black and white, you should do this, you shouldn't do that buckets. To me, that's kind of alarm bells start to go off because most things are gray. You know, what what are the unique circumstances surrounding your particular idea? Mm-hmm. Um, it might be that you could just find a business with a, you know, what do they call small marginal utility uh, or marginal revenue where every dollar you spend, if you're selling, you're making a dollar fifty. And so over the course of the year, you actually end up positive. But it also comes back to 
Like, what are your goals? Are you looking to build a lifestyle business where you make 50 to 100K a year and you free yourself to not have to work for, you know, the so-called man? Or are you looking to build the next tech unicorn, um, in which case you probably need to raise some capital and in which case you probably will be recording a loss for the first five or 10 years of your business. Um, that tends to be the nature of that game. And then, of course, you have businesses in between in the middle market who might generate 40 or 50 million a year. Um, Do you think that was what was happening with Uber like at the start? Did they, yeah, definitely. Did they operated at a loss? Oh, yeah. They operated at a loss for years. Um, I, I'm not, I haven't seen their latest numbers, but I still think they're operating at a loss. Like They're making a ton of money, but they're losing more than they're making. That's the price you pay for growth. Yeah. And sometimes that's not sustainable because if you look at that market now, there's new entrants. Obviously, Lyft's been a, you know, a big player in that space for ages. Our China's DD Choosing uh, has entered that space. And I think they've, they've started promoting in Melbourne, uh, in Australia a couple of years ago as well. Um, so that is a common thing. Amazon, Amazon from, you know, they, they first year as a public company was 1997. And for something like 20 years, they just recorded losses. Um, But why do you think they recorded losses? Because everything they made, they reinvested into innovation, into growth. They went from bookstore to um, Amazon web services to owning e-commerce. It's constant innovation. Um, And it's only been the last few years where they've started recording a profit and it's like 1% margins. But when your top line's huge, 1% of a trillion dollars is still a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, of course. So what about, like, let's say um, somebody has like, they've progressed through that business idea and now they've, they're, and they're bootstrapped the whole way. Mm. Now, I think the hardest part for a lot of entrepreneurs is knowing where to then uh, pump that money back in like where do they reallocate their resources and things like that yeah so firstly you need to define your objectives so is it to double revenue um secondly you want to reflect on what's worked so one thing i do with my team on a quarterly basis is i draw up a like a a quadrant type thing do more do less start doing stop doing and i reflect on marketing channels sales techniques products we're selling geographies we're targeting industries we're targeting people at these companies that we're targeting like what's actually working and what's not um and then based on what you've put forward there i'd say well what has been working um maybe it's x marketing channel uh, maybe it's these facebook ads have been working really well so why are we spending money on all these other advertising revenue advertising channels that aren't working, we should double down on this. Mm. Um, so it really comes back to what are your objectives, um, reflecting on what's been working, but also as part of that quadrant, you know, what should we start doing that we haven't been doing? Like what are the new emerging things happening in this space? What are other companies doing in our industry or in other industries that perhaps we could be leveraging and borrowing from and start, as I said earlier, testing those assumptions as to whether or not those things will help you get closer to where you're going. And um, you know, a big part of that equation is understanding what resources you have available, what people you have on the bus, what are their strengths, their skill sets. Because, you know, there may be a channel that perhaps isn't the best channel to explore in the world, but you've got someone on the bus who's just really great at that particular thing and they'll make it work for your company. So it's a reflecting on a number of different variables. Again, there's no black or white, yes or no answer. Of course, of course. So let's sort of um, segment into, I guess, mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, We're sort of delving heavily into the business side of things, but ultimately it comes back to mindset. Of course. Um, So let's have a look at some of these, like, um, I guess, like productivity um, tips and things like that for um, those starting their own business or mm-hmm. um, who just struggle to get motivated with work? Like what are some some productivity hacks that you can uh, you know, yep. suggest? Yeah, of course. Um, well, there's a number of things, but one of the big ones goes back to Seneca, you know, the Roman statesman and a philosopher from 2,000 years ago. He basically wrote a book called uh, On the Shortness of Life. And in that book, he said that people are frugal, with their money, but not with their time. And time is the one thing that they should be frugal with because mm. you know, money, if I spend my money, waste it, I can always earn that money back. But time, when I've spent it, it's gone. It's the most precious commodity we have. Mm. And the quality of our life comes back to how we choose to invest our time. But so many entrepreneurs, and not just entrepreneurs, but people in, in the corporate world or people in general, they say yes to pretty much everything. Like that, they don't really 
value their time the way they should. And the thing is, when you say yes to something, while that might create some space for serendipity, more often than not, it just means that you're saying no to everything else and that everything else includes your own priorities. So get good at identifying your objectives, where you want to go. And when opportunities arise, and, and the thing about opportunities is the more successful you become, the more opportunities come your way. So you need to get really good at differentiating between is this something that's going to help me or hurt me and, uh, and get good at saying no. Um, man, if I, someone invites me to a one-hour meeting and there's like a 1% chance this could be worth my time and I get into the habit of saying yes, that's one hour of my time. Like, what do you value your time at? Um, it's funny because in the corporate world, you see this all the time. If people stay back at work, right? From 5 p.m. is they say knockoff time and they stay back till 8 p.m. because their manager's still around. Um, and if you ask them, what's your hourly rate? They'll say, oh, I wouldn't work for less than $200 an hour. But you're not getting paid for those extra three hours, no. So then I flip the script and I say, well, would you pay $600 to go home at 5 p.m.? No, I would, wouldn't. But you just said your time is worth $200 now. So it doesn't make sense. So people default to just not valuing their time as much as money. But money is a made up construct. Like Daniel Reason, uh, you know, you'll pay $100 for your uh, Blue Yeti microphone is because the person selling it has a, is sharing this story around money. Um, whereas time is a real thing that we should be valuing a hell of a lot more. So that's one of the big productivity tips. But um, I mean, to, to make it more interesting, perhaps you can tell me what you struggle with when it comes to productivity. Uh, and perhaps, and I know you don't, you, you, you probably don't struggle anywhere near as the typical person because I know you're, you, you live around the corner and every time I walk past Lucas's place, like when, if I'm going for a jog or something, he's out the front uh, on his walking treadmill, working on his Instagram posts with his shirt off, getting some sun, and then he'll stop occasionally and do some uh, reps of his bicep curls. That's why he's so ripped on those IG posts. But I know we all have our struggles, including me. Uh, you know, because I wrote a book doesn't mean I'm perfect when it comes to productivity. We all have our challenges. What's one of yours? Um, as I'd love to unpack that. Yeah. So actually right now, the, the biggest struggle for me is um, knowing how to outsource. Mm-hmm. Because there's, and, I'm, and I'm sure it's like, you have so much pride in what you do and you, you've got your own ways of doing things. Um, but it's for me to struggle to know how and what to outsource. Like how do I, because I can't be doing everything all at once. Right now I'm wearing a million hats. Yep. I'm doing podcasting, YouTube videos, like IG posts, responding to DMs, consulting, like a lot all at once. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm just like, right, this is not sustainable because ultimately I'm going to just get burnt out. Yeah, I'm fully aware of that. People have told me about it. So I'm just sort of thinking like, how do I, if I were to clone myself, like what would that other person be doing? And so for me, that's probably the hardest thing is like letting go and like letting go of that thinking that you can do it all mm. um, and outsourcing. Good question. Uh, firstly, I'd say if you were to clone yourself, that's a different question. Because if you were to clone yourself, the other person will be working on high-value activities. Now, where you want to start with outsourcing is what are the low-value activities you find yourself doing? Like what's process-oriented, step-by-step, algorithmic that you could codify and give to someone else? Um, So that could be like administrative stuff. It could be just you know scheduling things to get posted onto Insta. Like you're posting, you're creating the posts. Yeah. That's where you apply your cognition. But in terms of the actual posting to Instagram, scheduling something, like that's algorithmic, process-oriented. You can get that to someone else. So the question really comes back to what do you value your time at? And if you value your time at $100 an hour, but you're spending all your time on these so-called $10 an hour tasks, which someone on Upwork or freelancer.com can do for you, Mm. then every hour you're spending on that work, that $10 an hour task is effectively costing you $90 um, plus compounding over time. Not only that, but working on those low value tasks is not very fulfilling, rewarding, motivating. And the more time you spend that, the more you start hating your work. Mm -hmm. So if you want to play the long game on something, entrepreneurship, building your social media profile, whatever the case is, you've got to make it enjoyable by doing away with the stuff that you don't enjoy and focusing on the stuff you do enjoy, which incidentally, you're also good at. Mm -hmm. Because then over time, like the compounding effect of that is absolutely huge. Mm -hmm. So 
I would look at low value tasks. I would also look at tasks where there's no significant risk to, to your business. Like I said, don't do it well. Like what happens? Like you can just pull the plug. Um, that is where I would start. So I've got a pretty comprehensive guide on this stuff in the book as well that people can, can, can check out. But, uh, and as I said, you can find these people on Upwork, freelancer.com. There are, I've been using uh, free, freelancers to help me with all manner of tasks, content creation, content distribution, uh, finding podcast guests, scheduling those interviews, uh, like you name it, I've, I've used them. Um, and generally tend not to pay more than $10 an hour for, for the privilege. And, and sometimes people think, oh, well, I've got these tasks, but it only takes me like five minutes a day, five times a day. But if you extrapolate that out over the course of the year, it can end up costing someone like 15 workdays. Like where, where else could you be spending those 15 workdays? And it could be in your work or it could be that you just end up you know, living more life, going for a skate or a surf or whatever you enjoy to do. So what about, um, so it's one thing that I find myself doing quite a lot um, and it feels good to be uh, juggling like multiple tasks yeah. at once. Like, you know, when you're, trying, you're multitasking, you're able to, like, mm-hmm. you're responding to messages, you're doing this. You're, like, it, it <laughs> feels like you're a boss. Like, yeah. You feel like you're just juggling, like, so many things all at once. So, and I know you're a huge um, believer on, like, like singular, like, focusing on mm. one activity at a time. Um, but do you want to talk about, like, maybe task switching? And how to <laughs> 100%. Uh, so, you're right. Sometimes that can lull you into a false sense of productivity and like, oh, I'm doing so many things. And I'm, I'm a boss. Sometimes there is perhaps a chemical release that comes with that. And we're talking about this the other week with ideas. Yeah, and I think yeah, you messaged yeah. me saying, man, I just came up with the best idea. <laughs> and uh, I think I responded saying, sometimes our ideas are a reflection. Well, our judgment of those ideas is a reflection of how we feel in that moment. So you think you come up with this great idea and the dopamine or whatever as it gets released and you, you project the quality of an idea on it without having done any testing. Yeah. And like, Do you remember the, remember the state I was in leading up to that? I actually I mentioned that like some of my best ideas come when I'm the most irritable. Yeah. Like what's that all about? You know, like why? And when I'm, when I'm really frustrated mm-hmm. and like I feel... Um, Oh, it's when I it's when I have that really strong feeling of not feeling good enough. Yeah, that's when I that's when my best ideas. It's interesting that there's I guess two ways to look at that. So one is you know philosophy, for example. Mm. A lot of people turn to philosophy or meditation or, or whatever when they've gone through significant hardship. You start asking the questions. Mm. So if you're irritated about mm. whatever you're either going to just cave or you're going to look for solutions. You know, the best way to get out of a hole is to start digging. So perhaps that has something to do with it. The other side of that ideation coin is um, when people feel calm, when there's absolutely nothing going on, that's when ideas come to them, when they're going for a walk, Mm -hmm. right? Because when you go for a walk, um, you're, your brain sees that as a moment of fight or flight. It goes back to evolution again and it releases BDNF, right? Yeah. And that can help you focus and it can help unlock insights. Um, the other aspect of that is also when you have a lot of different disjointed insights and you go to sleep, your sleep acts as a mechanism to uh, make connections between those disparate insights and that's the essence of creativity and that's where ideas come from. So there's a lot of stuff uh, in that with ideation, but to take it back to task switching. Um, so the thing about multitasking is it's a myth. It's, it's a task switch. And every time you task switch, actually take it even further, you've discussed the flow state on your program before, right? So Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi coined the term four decades ago. You know, we're up to five times more productive in the flow state. Not only are we more productive, it's super rewarding. You end up feeling great and buzzing afterwards. Um, but when you task switch, when you're interrupted, whether it's a notification on your phone, something popping up on your screen, someone tapping you on the shoulder, a phone call, your own internal triggers forcing you to check it, Instagram, we pay with a cognitive switching penalty. And studies on this, advanced brain monitoring did a study on this, which found that it can take us up to 23 minutes to get back in the zone after we switch. So if we're switching every five minutes, every 10 minutes a day, but the time to get back in the zone is up to 23 minutes, then chances are people aren't spending too much time in the flow state, which is 
you know, the optimal state of you know, human performance, really. Yeah. Uh, so cultivating the ability to focus on one thing at a time, doing away with all the browser windows, putting your phone aside, that is difficult initially because it's, again, it's, it's not comfortable because we're forcing our brains to actually think, to expend cognition. Uh, it's, it, it's a departure from the let's pick the low-hanging fruit and conserve energy. But the more you get into the habit of doing that, the easier it becomes. Yeah. Um, and again, this goes back to momentum. Just when you sit down to your work, start with the smallest possible unit of high-value work. Commit to that. Do away with, with distractions and anything that's going to uh, get you out of flow. And just start with half an hour. Yeah. Half an hour will become one hour. And nowadays when I sit down to work in the morning, I'm usually like two hours at least of just deep work. And then take a break and move on to something else, mm. um, which flies in the face of some of the pre, uh, the Pomodoro technique stuff you read about, 20 minutes. And if I'm in flow, I'm in there for at least an hour and sometimes two. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to stop 20 minutes in because yeah. that's going to ruin my flow and then it could take me another 20 minutes just to get back into it. So, exactly. yeah. Yeah, apart from the um, feeling irritable, there is another time when I do feel like the ideas just pop out of my head yep. or like I get ideas actually when I'm doing the dishes. Oh yeah, washing the dishes like it doesn't make. It's like every single time I turn the tap on. Well, what what sort of um headspace are you in there when you're washing I the dishes? I feel like when I'm yeah when I'm in that space, I'm just like I'm not. I don't know what it is. I'm just not aware of anything else. I'm just like on autopilot, mm -hmm. you know, like just scrubbing, just like, and then just I get all these ideas. I don't know what it is. I guess it's just a very low cognition task. Mm where but you're still kind of focused on something but perhaps it takes the focus away from other things and the monkey mind to a certain degree and it just yeah. opens up those neural pathways so you can come up with those ideas i don't know maybe uh, theory uh, i thought it would have been the um the chemicals from the from the of course you, you thought <laughs> it was the chemicals <laughs> inhaling the this you know because you got the the vapor what, what, uh, so uh, fresh big yeah, no, morning fresh, but look, fresh here is the new this is Mr. Ergogenic Healthier. So I, I assume you went further and looked at what the chemical <laughs> might actually be. So enlighten our audience. Was, there was one, but uh, they, don't, they don't have any like human research on what it does. But yeah, I'm sure in some way it's probably an excitotoxin. Okay. So a lot of these um, chemicals that we find in the environment, like these pollutants, things, they can actually stimulate glutamate because mm -hmm. they're excitatory. And like, and that's part of the reason why it causes neuronal cell death. Yeah, because they're excitatory. When you get that excitatory signal, maybe that's what's triggering the ideas. I don't know. Mm. Has there been any studies performed on this or on uh, dishwashing? And <laughs> yeah, or well, on those particular chemicals and the impact um, on? They do studies on like in rats and things like that. Yeah, to analyze like the neurotoxic effects of chemicals and stuff. But um. No, it's really interesting. Just somehow, like when I do the dishes, like I just mm. get ideas and they just, they're really good ideas. I have to literally. literally are, are they good ideas? Because every, I'd say 99% of my good ideas haven't been good ideas after I've gone out and tested them. Well, majority of mine, I mean, I just put on, like, I'll, I've got a whole Excel sheet with a list of post ideas mm. on Instagram and I just, I put it there. I've got like 1,900 ideas, post ideas. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's weird how that sort of happens in that environment. Yeah. Not even if I'm like meditating, it won't happen. Like it's interesting. Like I tend to um, write my articles when I go for walks, like in my head, I'll just write them. I'll just let the mm -hmm. ideas come to me. And then when I'm done with my walk, I'll just jot down as many of, thing, of the things that I can remember. And that will form the, the skeleton for an article. And that, that's probably the hardest bit, coming up with the insights that are going to make this article unique, compelling. Um, and writing, it's, that's easy. I feel like once I've got those insights, I've kind of been possessed by this uh, idea for an article and the words just flow. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre how that happens. Yeah. I know some, like, some pretty close friends of mine, they, they come to me and they're like, oh, like, what do you do when you get like writer's block? Mm -hmm. I sort of don't know how to respond to that because I just... Like touch wood, I've just never had that. You're probably the same, like writer's block. Like what would you... I, yeah, I, the only times I've 
felt writer's block is when I was writing about something I didn't feel prepared to write about. Like I didn't have enough information. Maybe I wasn't inspired enough to write about it. It wasn't really something I I felt strongly enough about. I think if you are writing about something you feel strongly about, you feel this purpose behind it, you've got the information, you've done your research, the words just flow. Like it's almost difficult not to write the article. But if you're experiencing writer's block all the time, like sure, there might be some underlying uh, you know, brain fog and, and you know, biological predispositions and, and whatnot that someone might be dealing with. But more often than not, it's just because of the nature of the stuff that you're writing about. Mm. So um, let's sort of segue into, obviously, like we've spoken about some productivity hacks and mm-hmm. um, business entrepreneurial ideas. Maybe do you want to discuss some of the, I guess, because you have a new book that's coming out. I do. Soon. Where is uh, it? Do you want to talk about uh, Time Rich over here, actually? <laughs> There we go. You guys can see that. Flash that cover. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you so on the YouTube. Bad Boys being released in how many days now? Uh, two days. I should, I should have had a faster answer to that question, but it's coming out in two days. It was actually supposed to come out. The book's called Time Rich, Do Your Best Work, Live Your Best Life, coming out through Wiley. It was supposed to come out in May, but because of the whole CV thing, uh, decided with the publisher to push it back to October, thinking that the world would have gotten back to some semblance of normality by then, but clearly that's uh, not not the case. Um, so yeah, comes out in a couple of days. People can actually download the first chapter and a whole bunch of time-rich tools, automation tools at timereachbook.com. But um, yeah, the book was inspired by an article I wrote for Harvard Business Review called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday. And that article itself was inspired by some experiences I had uh, running my company. So I mean, my backstory is I I worked for big consulting firms for about 10 years, EY, uh, KPMG, investment banks like Macquarie Bank before jumping into entrepreneurship. And what you tend to do if you've done that is you take a lot of these habits and archaic ways of work from the corporate world and embed them into your business. And for me, that meant working long hours, which isn't just a corporate thing. A lot of entrepreneurs tend to think that to be successful, you've got to work 14-hour days. But our cognition drops off after we've really been in the flow state for four or five hours very, very quickly. Um, And I found that being the leader of this team, I needed to set a so-called good example and stay back until 7 p.m. every night, which meant that by the time I get home, it'd be 8 o'clock, it'd be dark, didn't really have time to socialize, didn't have sunlight to go for a surf and do those things that I enjoy to do. And it was about two years into running Collective Campus that I reflected on this. And I, I thought, well, why am I doing this? You know, I'm just anchoring to the past. And if I was honest with myself, by about 2 or 3 p.m. most days, I was pretty much done. And then I was just sitting there working on shallow level work. Right. So I thought, well, let's, let's run a six-hour workday experiment. Um, Adam Grant, the uh, professor of organizational development at Penn State, he wrote something about six-hour workdays and how more organizations should move to this. So I set up this experiment and we wanted to test whether or not people could be as productive and whether or not it would improve their mental, emotional well-being as well. And uh, after a couple of weeks, the results were tallied effectively and we found people were probably more productive because the shorter workday acted as a forcing function. Um, It required us to do away with all the low-level work, automate absolutely everything we could, outsource everything that couldn't be automated and be more diligent with how we spent our time, be more diligent about cultivating the flow state. And people were more productive. People were happier. They had more time to spend on hobbies, family, personal interests, whatever the case was. That became that article. And then my publisher said, wow, this article's blown up. It was syndicated by the Wall Street Journal, Taking Asia, news.com.au, the New Zealand Herald, and wrote the article and, sorry, wrote the book. And the book, the central premise really is the way we work is something that we've never learned just like learning. We've never learned how to learn. We've never learned how to work. And we've never learned how to think either. Like these are three fundamental things that we didn't really learn in school. Um, But when it comes to work, you know, the nine to five work day, everyone online at the same time or everyone in the office at the same time, pre-CV, that's a throwback to the industrial revolution. 
Like that is a throwback to the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was ratified into law in 1937 in the United States and came on the back of about 100 years of lobbying by textile manufacturers and the like during the Industrial Revolution. But if you look at work then, very algorithmic, standing on conveyor belts, putting things into boxes, uh, agriculture, you know, coal mines. The more hours you spent, the more output that was created. There was a direct line between presence and productivity. But work has changed a lot since then. I mean, when's the last time you stood on a conveyor belt, Lucas, right? Except for, actually, that's probably a bad question, seeing as you stand on a walking treadmill every day, <laughs> which is a bit of a conveyor belt of sorts. Yeah. Uh, but when's the last time you, you know, rummaged through a coal mine? Uh, never. Um, work has changed. Today, it's a lot more cognitive, uh, cognitively complex. Mm. Task scope has expanded. So what helps us uh, when it comes to knowledge work is getting into the flow state, which you can only do for about four hours a day, as various studies have shown. And then you hit the point of diminishing returns very quickly. But the way organizations are built today, structured, it's all very much industrial revolution, nine to five, hours equals output, but that's just not the case. Mm. And um, the book demonstrates how that is bad for productivity, both at an individual level as well as for organizations and what we should be doing instead. Mm. So for those listening in, I guess, um, if they wanted to like, let's say they wanted to actually reduce their their workload Mm -hmm. and they wanted to apply, I guess, like the the six-hour workday, where can they sort of, um, how can they start with that? Like what are some of the things that they can do to, I guess, because realistically, they're cutting back by how many, what, a couple of hours instead. So instead of working from nine till, till five, they're doing what, nine till? Nine to three. And the six-hour workday thing is purely like, it's just, that was just an experiment. There is no hard and fast rule around how many hours you should or shouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really comes down to your personal predispositions. And again, like it wouldn't necessarily be nine to three for everyone because different people have different chronotypes, like something like 50% of the population across men and women are actually night owls and they're more productive 10 hours after waking up, um, getting them to the office or getting them to a Zoom call by 9 a.m. actually results in um, a form of uh, social jet lag and can result in anxiety and depression in the long run because you're not really giving people the ability to sleep their preferred sleeping hours. They're probably not sleeping as well as they should and that obviously has all sorts of uh, deleterious downstream effects on, on people's cognition, yeah. and mental well-being and everything else. Uh, that's a totally different conversation. Um, but yeah, when it comes to... Sh- shortening down your day, I mean, just the first thing you can do is reflect on how you're spending your time. And the simple thing is what's process oriented. Let's automate that or outsource that. Like that's probably going to get you a lot more time back straight away. Second thing, what am I saying yes to? All these meeting requests. Example of that, Dominic Price um, from Atlassian, I believe he's the head evangelist, I think is his title. Don't quote me on that. He's come up with this concept called boomerangs or sticks. And he says that he was spending all of his time in meetings. And then one day he decided, look, I'm just going to start rejecting meetings that I don't think are valuable. And of the meetings that he would send back, you know, the meeting requests that he would send back, two-thirds wouldn't come back. So they were basically sticks. He threw them back, they didn't come back. One-third did, so they were boomerangs. But by doing that, he says he saved 15 hours a week in meetings. 15 hours that he could invest in his own work and in his own priorities. So getting good at saying no there as well is another thing you could do. Third thing, when it comes to meetings, when it comes to you actually setting up those meetings, uh, do you need to have a meeting or can this just be information that's communicated via an email? Because oftentimes people have meetings to communicate information and that's just a waste of time unless it's like some really big, hairy, audacious thing you need to communicate that could have all sorts of implications. Um, if If you must have a meeting, does it need to be one hour by default? Because that is typically what people schedule. Um, I've got a Calendly tool, which is 15 minutes by default. I send that to people. You want a meeting? Cool. Here it is. Schedule it in at a time that suits me because I've got time blocked for uh, deep work. They schedule that 15 minutes. That acts as a forcing function and gets us to focus on those high value activities. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, just eliminating wasteful activities and... That's, that's a big part of it. And the other part of it would be a lot of the stuff that you talk about, which is 
you know, how do you hack your biology so that you can exactly. get into the flow state, you can operate at a higher level. And if you can do that, you don't need to sit at your desk for 12 hours. You can probably get the same outcome in three. Exactly. And that's where I think um, to have that mindset, that's where we need to sort of live that sort of lifestyle that sort of creates that environment to have that discipline, to create that motivation. Because that really comes back to um, like an... Dan Henry, this guy who works underneath um, Jordan Belfort, he spoke about like how most entrepreneurs fail because they don't get their sleep, their diet, their their um, stress managed, all of those things. They affect our mindset. Mm-hmm. You can sort of, you can hijack that state. You really can. If you do the, the, the fundamentals right, you know, and you use nootropics and you, you know, you get your sleep on point, um, then it makes executing all of these things that you've just spoken about a lot easier because you actually have the, I guess the, the framework and the infrastructure to actually execute um, on these tasks. And you also, we also briefly mentioned um, Calendly mm-hmm. um, and some other sort of tools because there are a lot of um, time-saving tools out there, yeah. right? such as Calendly. And- Calendly, um, Ask Amy, XDIAI, these are just scheduling tools mm. um, to effectively, you know, ensure that you're not playing tennis games every time someone wants to request a meeting, but also that people can only book meetings when it suits you. So your whole day doesn't get booked up with interruptions. And also that the length of those meetings is a certain amount of time. Now there's other tools you can use nowadays, excuse me, like uh, Zapier, for example, or uh, IFTTT, which stands for if this, then that, which basically helps you create your own little scripts to move, uh, information and data from one place to another rather than doing that manually. Um, And that could be applied to all sorts of things. These tools are relatively inexpensive, relatively easy to learn. We did that. We've applied these tools to things like proposal development. So we used Web Merge and Airtable and probably cost us about $1,000. And we hacked together this proposal tool. So every time someone, uh, a company comes to us and says, hey, we want a design thinking workshop, Typically, you'd need to then put together, say, a PowerPoint proposal, 10, 15 pages. Here's what it will entail. Here's our case studies. Here's how much it will cost, et cetera, et cetera. So our tool empowers us to just add the company name and logo, select the workshop, um, put in some pricing, and it will spit out a proposal in under five minutes. And we've pretty much got our proposal, whereas typically it would take us maybe an hour to put that together, um, to find uh, previous examples and everything else that comes with that. So by hacking that together, not only can we save untold amounts of hours over the course of the year, but then if I have a remote salesperson jumping on, I'm like, here's the tool. And they can just put together their own proposals to send out the door. So it helps us with onboarding and scale as well. Mm. Um, so Web Merge, Airtable, If This, Then That, and Zapier are four awesome tools to help you get more time back. Other component of that is distractions and not making sure you're not distracted. So if you're one of these people who has very little self-control, uh, you could download apps like Blocksite or Freedom App and block certain apps for certain periods of the day. Mm. Um, and that can help because then you'll find yourself clicking into Twitter and then it will say, oh, app disabled. You're like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. And you go back to what you were supposed to be doing. And then over time, you train yourself to not, you know, involuntarily almost reach for your phone and check Instagram. Mm. Yeah. That's like some of those tools you mentioned, um, the Zapier, the Calendly, they're, they're things I've used. I've integrated in the last probably six months personally. Yeah. I've had some help with some IT friends to sort of set it up. It's that initial setup that's sort of time-consuming, but then um, the net result really is that it saves you time in the long run. Yeah. What we're trying to do, um, building businesses, being... 100%. But that's like anything. And, and that's something a lot of people I've worked with say, you know, yeah. when I ask entrepreneurs, I'm like, hey, are you automating anything? Are you outsourcing anything? It's like, oh, I haven't got time to set that up, which is kind of ironic yeah. because if you did set it up, it would repay itself, you know, orders of magnitude times over, yeah. uh, over time. Exactly. Um, it's like, investing. Like if you want to invest in a company, uh, of course, you need to spend money upfront to buy those shares or whatever it is. But then over a period of X number of years, hopefully if you've made the right choice, that will repay itself 10 times, 20 times, 50 times over. Yeah. But you've got to make that investment upfront. That's yeah. just the nature of, of life. Yeah. And it's the same thing with, um, with outsourcing work, exactly in terms of like hiring someone on Fiverr, mm-hmm. that initial training period, like you just have to 
put in that initial yeah to teach them how to do it even though it might be a very basic task yeah you might need to create a video here's what you do step by step um and then once i get the hang of it then you can really just it's just free flowing from there that's that's a great point and um that's one of the reasons a lot of companies who have tried outsourcing end up insourcing they're like oh, it doesn't work for us it's because they haven't been explicit with their instructions like you can't leave anything to chance yeah. with these things yeah. so record a video put together a step-by-step document with screenshots and speech bubbles and everything yeah. else make sure there are no stones unturned and still give them a bit of leeway to stuff up a few times um, provide them with that coaching and that all sounds like a lot of work but once they're on board and it could take a week could take a month mm. You don't have to think about it ever again. It's yeah. done. And now that you've got all this documentation, if that person chooses to, to leave or whatever, you could just take that and give it to someone else and onboard them pretty much overnight. So Awesome. So I think, um, yeah, hopefully for our listeners, I mean, for my audience, um, I'm sure I have a lot of mostly like PTs mm-hmm. um, and people starting their own sort of health business or like a lot of, I've got a lot of um, nutritionists, um, naturopaths sort of following me. So, I guess for them, maybe do you want to give them some tips in terms of um, how can they sort of get in the mindset of how they can differentiate themselves from the rest of, because there's so many nutritionists, there's so many naturopaths. How can they sort of differentiate um, or succeed in this sort of space? Yeah, great question. So there's a great book um, by... Chan Kim, I believe it is, called Blue Ocean Strategy. And this effectively talks about, you know, at its core, Blue Ocean, when you think about it, it's an ocean that's not a blood red ocean. Uh, because in a blood red ocean, you've got fish all biting at each other and it's just bedlam. Blue Ocean, not many people fishing there, but there are fish to be caught. So when you're looking to differentiate yourself, you want to look at what are the factors of competition, price, service, how I find customers, how I promote my product, um, the experience. Like there, there are so many different things. And an example of this is um, the Nintendo Wii. So now it's a bit of a dated console, but when it came along, it was competing with, it was entering a market that was dominated by Sony PlayStation and Microsoft Xbox. So it couldn't just come along and just be just another platform yeah. like that. So what it did, it didn't focus on awesome graphics. It focused on uh, playability. And it focused on you know the motion controller, and it unlocked a whole new market of people. It wasn't necessarily fifteen-year-old teenage boys playing, but it became thirty-five to forty-five-year-old mums who were playing with their kids. It became more of a family thing. Mm. So, if you are looking to differentiate yourself in a saturated market, like what are those factors of competition, customer segments you're targeting? So, rather than just targeting eighteen to thirty-year-old dudes who want to get ripped. It could be that you're working with 70-year-olds who want to stay mobile. Like, mm. What are those unique differentiating factors? And how are you going to reach those 70-year-olds who stay mobile? Are you going to run Instagram ads? Because you're not going to find them. Like, Perhaps you can partner with aged care facilities and things of that persuasion. Now, this is a very specific example. Maybe not now because that would be a bit of a high-risk proposition, but you know what I'm saying. Um, customer marketing channels, sales techniques, what you're actually doing, the customer service you're providing. There are so many different things you could be doing to do that. And to provide people with a bit more actionable guidance in that space, um, check out the 30, I believe it's the 30 elements of value. It's an article that uh, one of the partners at uh, Bain and Company, I believe it was, put together. I actually had him on my podcast, Future Squared, about two years ago. And it just runs through all the different elements you can introduce to your business to make it differentiated from everyone else. And it's based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like emotional, safety, psychological needs, everything else. And what could you be doing better? Um, And sometimes it's just a matter of, uh, and I'll give you an example, a real world example from my own uh, experience of how we differentiated ourselves as a corporate innovation consultancy with Collective Campus. Mm. Um, In this particular industry, a lot of the way uh, companies generate business is through... Yeah, conferences, uh, existing relationships, very old school. Um, whereas what we did, we focused on content. We focused on our strengths, stuff we knew about. We just published like 300 blog posts, 25 eBooks, 300 podcast episodes. On your site? Or like- on our site over a period of like right. two, 
over a period of like two, three years. Um, but that content generated or still generates to this day about 400 to 500 inbound leads a month. Uh, people come to us because they're looking for answers. They want, But then that download obviously triggers an email, a notification with the phone number and oh, they're from... Um, they're from Sony. Let's give them a call. Uh, oh, just noticed you downloaded our ebook on the Lean Startup and wanted to have a conversation. That, you might not get the sale straight away, but you're building a relationship. Yeah. And then over time, that differentiates you. And over time, we start ranking for all sorts of requests. Uh, corporate innovation consulting, corporate innovation training. We're number one in Australia. We're number one in a number of Asian countries for those terms. Um, so how can you differentiate yourself? Another big thing we did with the content we created uh, about 20 uh, geo-targeted pages for all of our services. So we've got about 10 services on our webpage, Mm -hmm. but we created pages for Los Angeles, New York, Dubai, London, Sydney, Singapore, Shanghai, where the imagery on these pages for these services and the copy was totally unique across all these pages. It would be very local-centric. So we would refer to things in their local... um, uh, area like in the New York page we crack a few jokes we talk about wise guys and things of that persuasion um, and that helps us rank in those places so if I'm in New York I'm searching for corporate innovation training we're going to pop up on page one mm-hmm. that's organic it's free and it helps us generate traffic we're not paying for that and as a small consultancy it means we can keep our cost base low we haven't got the money to spend on big above the line advertising and that's helped us um, be a seven figure business now for a number of years with a very small team and a very small budget Mm. Yeah, one thing you sort of um, touched on is um, the different ways to compete in a marketplace. You sort of said cost, quality. The, the one that I really want to focus on is speed. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that you've taught yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and I think you've really helped me with my own business yeah. is doing things quick, like getting things done quick. And that's one thing that I think... Um, you know, it comes back to that analysis paralysis, trying to get things perfect, but just do things at a quick, quick pace. And like you get the results and then you refine and then adapt and then, and then you build upon that. So I think uh, like personally, one thing that I'm focusing on a lot and even trying to expand on that is like, like speed, like even the last few months, I think that like just the pace at which I do things now, like the quality hasn't dropped off because then there's that, that sort of trade-off between uh, quality versus speed. Yeah. But I think I have shifted more towards like focusing on doing things quick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so speed is fundamental to obviously getting closer to your goals, learning, innovating, all that sort of stuff. And I'm glad you brought this particular point up and ties into some of the stuff we've talked about already, yeah. um, like 80-20. If you're focusing on the 20%, you get further, faster, yeah. uh, automating and outsourcing all the stuff that's slowing you down that you shouldn't be spending your time on so you can free yourself up to focus on high-value activities. Mm. Um, that's another aspect of, of speed as well, um, focusing on stuff that's aligned with your strengths, stuff that you truly believe in so you're operating at a higher level, you're cultivating more time in the flow state. Again, that's going to help you get further, yeah. faster. Um, not procrastinating and getting started on the smallest possible unit of work to build momentum and and get into that habit of doing high value work day after day for extended periods of time without distractions. Mm. Like you do all of this stuff, you're going to be moving pretty damn fast. Um, And then just not bogging bogging yourself down with uh, self-debilitating self-talk where you're like, oh, I'm not sure about this and, and just putting it out there because the faster you put it out there, the faster you learn whether or not something is worth it or not. And when it comes to speed, I mean, you've kind of been privy to, to my journey with No Filter from day one. So No Filter Media, basically a media company I founded during the pandemic, uh, literally about three months ago. Yeah. It was just an idea. I geeked out one day and I just filled two whiteboards with like, I just had this brainwave came over me about, and this comes back to speed because if I look at media companies, if I look at a lot of companies in general, the way they work, so, so slow. Like they outsource accountability for everything. They hold meetings for everything. Um, an example of that was we ran a, a startup partnership program for a big company about a year ago. And for these programs, we create a website, which we use then to promote the program. And they, their marketing team said, hey, can you complete this five-page brief about the website? 
and then we'll review it at our marketing committee meeting in two weeks' time. Then we'll come back to you with any requests um, and changes. And I was like, this is not going to work for us. And, and this is a team of like eight people operating at that pace. So I just told um, Charity, my designer, like, can you smash out a website in like the next hour for this program? She did. I sent it to them. They're like, oh, yeah, this, this will do. Um, so like that just demonstrates how that mindset of how quickly something can be done. If you give yourself an hour to do it, you'll do it in an hour. Yeah. If you give yourself eight people, a committee meeting in three weeks to do it, that's how long it's going to take you. Mm. So um, speed with respect to no filter, it was just an idea. And today it's a fully fledged media company um, generating income. It's got about close to a thousand articles on the site, six podcasts as part of the growing podcast network, including Boost Your Biology, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, if you, if you visited No Filter today, nofilter.media, uh, you would think this is a fully fledged media company that's been around for years. Yeah. But it's, it was just an idea three months ago. And we achieved that with three people working about two days a week for the last three months. Mm. Uh, that's by doing everything I said. What's the 80 20? Let's automate, let's outsource, let's crowdsource writers and podcasters who can bring great content to the show like Boost Your Biology, to the, to the network like Boost Your Biology yeah. and let's grow from there. And if we can validate that this model makes sense, that we can be a very low cost media company compared to the bloated media companies that are currently firing hundreds and hundreds of people, we are then going to be way more competitive when it comes to monetizing um, ads. So this comes back to differentiation. How can we differentiate ourselves from other media companies? Well, we can be super fast. We can be super lean so that in a competitive ad marketplace, if going right for a podcast ad is $25 per 1,000 listeners, we can offer $15 per 1,000 listeners because our costs are so low that we're still making great margins on that. Whereas your bloated company can't offer that because then they'd be running at a loss. Yeah. So that's just an example of giving yourself a differentiated business model by focusing on speed, automation, and outsourcing. And today, that's, that's one of the best things you can do because so many companies still aren't getting this and they're still operating like it's 1973 and everyone's going to an office and using typewriters. Um, so whatever business you're running, get on board this sort of stuff because it's going to give you a serious competitive advantage over everyone else. For sure. You know, when you, when you first reached out and said you started that no filter company, yep. um, really that was the, the trigger for me to actually get my podcast up and running. Um, and since that day, I think we agreed that I'd try to do like maybe one a week. And since then I've literally been smashing out like three to four mm -hmm. and I'm over excelling as per usual. Like, of course, <laughs> always sitting the bar even higher, but yeah, just like, credit to you for that because really that's i literally went to bunnings bought like an easel like a, an art stand yeah had like a backdrop i'm like because the only thing that was stopping me from starting was like oh i don't have a good enough setup you don't need you it. don't need an amazing setup a good setup yeah. to start um and i booked some of the biggest guests after two weeks yeah like on my through my instagram and just since then man like i'm just yeah and i'm loving it like really enjoying it yeah. Fun process. Yeah. And I know you were thinking about doing it for quite a while. And yeah. then once you started, like momentum, and now you just keep going and you get that feedback loop. You get some awesome guests on the show. You have some awesome conversations. People give you feedback. Oh, they so love good. the show. And you just keep going. Yeah. Um, that's such such a huge thing. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, with um, podcasting, you mentioned big guests. <laughs> People have, not only do you have the self limiting belief around, I right, my setup isn't good enough, mm. but there's also a self limiting belief there around, who can I get on my show? And you would be surprised, well, not you now knowing what you know, but a lot of people would be surprised how easy it is to get great minds on your show, especially during these current times when a lot of people are in lockdown. And I had the same experience with Future Squared. Like, you know, I had Kevin Kelly and Adam Grant and That's Robert crazy. Green and yeah. all sorts of huge names on the show. And Ben Greenfield. Ben Greenfield, of course, someone your, your audience would know very well. Um, and it's not just that I had them on the show, but I was able to build relationships and learn from these people. And, and now when I have conversations with people, the thing about conversations is you tend to remember a lot more than you would. I typically tend to remember a lot more from conversations than I would just reading a book, unless I'm very diligent about highlighting and taking notes. So now when I have a conversation, I can like talk to anyone about almost anything because I've spoken with people from across these 
disparate fields that I can talk about neuroscience and biohacking and, you know, management and technology and AI and all sorts of stuff and actually sound somewhat smart as well, which is great. <laughs> so Steve, where can, um, we'll sort of wrap it up there. Where can people obviously find your work? I know you've got, obviously you've got IG, yeah. Um, but even Collective Campus, like where can they find more of your work? Yeah, yeah. Tune in? Sure. So my main uh, hang online would have to be uh, steveglovescu.com. People can find links to all of my businesses there, all of my books, podcasts, you name it, um, blogs, uh, and so on. Um, but in terms of the book, uh, if people are interested, they can head over to timereachbook.com. Uh, they can download the first chapter for free. They can download a PDF of Time Reach Tools and... I believe by the time this episode goes live, it will be available for sale. It goes live on October the 1st. So it will be on Amazon, Goodreads, Booktopia, you name it. It will be there. Awesome, man. Well, um, yeah, we'll wrap it up there. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure as always. And I'm always learning from, I'm always learning from Steve uh, every day. Always bouncing ideas, sending him WhatsApp messages when I'm irritable and frustrated with my crazy ideas. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure having you on. on no, it's an absolute pleasure. And I have to... Um, also say that being around people like yourself, even for, for me, um, having been in the game for a while, it still motivates me. And, and it goes back to the whole thing around you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. So just making sure you cultivate time to spend with driven, high performance people who are always looking to get the most out of every single day. I think that's one of the best things you can do for your, for your mindset. Yeah. Um, and Again, all comes down to mindset and persistence at the end of the day. So thank you so much. Thanks, TV. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 